This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Pope in a Speedo edition. It's Wednesday, October 3rd, 2018. On today's show, Kidding is a new premium gourmet TV series. It's on Showtime. It stars Jim Carrey as a Mr. Rogers-like figure going through a brutal midlife, late career, and quite existential crisis. And then polyamory, money, Nazis. No, not the Slate Culture Gap Fest. Well, yes, the Slate Culture Gap Fest, but not just the Slate Culture Gap Fest. It's also in the podcast Uncover Escaping Nexium. It's a deep dive into an organization that sells itself as a self-help outfit, but has been described also as a sex cult. And finally, we all do it. Why do fathers need to needle their kids with such pointedly witless comments? We discuss dad jokes. Uh, Hey, Julia. Uh, When you compared us to Nazis, was that a dad joke? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> this whole this whole show is a fucking dad joke. You haven't figured that out after ten years. Uh, Touche. Yeah, uh, I should say that you are the editor in chief of uh, Slate. That's true. Magazine and my co-host, my par- partner in dad joke crimes, and uh, of course Dana Stevens is Slate's film critic. Hey, Dana. Hey, Stephen. Uh, I can't wait to talk bad parental jokes with two moms. Uh, It seems a little heavily gendered. But uh, first, we're going to talk about Kidding, in which Jim Carrey plays Jeff Pickles, a beloved PBS mainstay, pioneer of children's TV, an equivalent we're meant to believe in uh, many respects of Mr. Rogers. Um, He's beloved for his goodness and wisdom on TV, but um, he's forced to live out in the real world as an actual human being. That is, as a husband, a father, and a mere mortal, his life has entered a phase of deep crisis of both identity and faith with the death in a car accident of one of his uh, twin sons. Will he keep up appearances or will he split in two? The show also stars um, Judy Greer as his wife. She's wonderful. Catherine Keener as his sister. And then in kind of uh, what's... It's there's a form of scenery chewing which is sort of the opposite of scenery chewing. We can get into that a wonderfully spitting out of scenery. (laughs) Well, you understand what I'm saying. A quiet but very gravitationally dark energy pulling performance from Frank Langella as his father. Anyway, let's listen to a clip. I want to do a show about death, something special. I don't think we want to do a show about passing on. No, not passing on death. I don't want to say my son is off cloud surfing or hula hooping with a halo. I want to say death. Well, it's brave of you, but I don't think you're ready to talk about this. I don't think I'm not ready like you think I'm not ready. I think we need to heal. Who's we? What's that? That is Roly Polly, the f- fearful pill bug. Looks like a baking accident. I think you're really onto something. You know. The longer we wait to deal with this in our special way, the more we're telling every child in America that when something catastrophic happens to them, they should just pretend it didn't. 
I should have said up front, Dana, this show comes uh, partially courtesy of Michel Gondry, who's, uh, I think, most famous still for having directed Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which also starred Jim Carrey. And there is um, a showrunner who created and has written many of the episodes named Dave Holstein. Uh, what do you make of this? Well, I'm going to say the things that I liked about it, first of all, because I have a feeling that we in general are probably going to run down this show. I, I in the end, don't think it totally works, but... I've watched all four episodes that have aired so far and will probably stick with it for at least a few more because largely of the puppets. I really think that the, the creativity of puppet time <laughs> is amazing. I, Why I are did you not laughing? See that. Well, because it's It's so... just like the best Dana. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Continue. That's a, da- that's a Dana joke. <laughs> It's a Dana truth and her truth. <laughs> I mean, it's but it's also a Michel Gondry thing, right? I mean, Michel Gondry's big um, kind of strong point in all of his films, and not all of his films work. Is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which was you know fifteen years ago now, almost is is still probably his most artistically successful film, I think. Um, but all of them have this element of whimsy and kind of in the show, it sometimes shades into almost magic realism, like things happen that you don't know if they're in someone's imagination or they're really happening and uh, and of sort of homemade objects. Right. Um, like he has this movie called Be Kind, Rewind. That's main charm is that it's all about two video store guys who decide to remake all their favorite movies just with a home camera. He really loves the homemade and things that have a homemade feeling. And the whole show of Puppet Time that Mr. Pickles hosts, Jim Carrey's character, is just beautifully conceived and weird and silly and could never quite exist. But you want to live in a world where it exists. And I thought all of that was was great. Um, Mm. I also think that every single performance is good. The casting is incredible. Watching the first episode is one of those moments where like you're at a banquet and all your favorite foods keep coming out one after another like wait Frank Langella Judy Greer Catherine Keener um, and everyone in it is really good yeah and even Justin Kirk who plays the sort of mysterious uh, new boyfriend of Jim Carrey's estranged wife uh, it's like another great yeah exactly even in the small roles everyone who's trotted out is is really good and the child actor Cole Allen who plays both of his twin sons one only in flashback is also terrific so all of that stuff is really solid but when we get to the actual writing of the show, the tone of it, and by this I mean not the puppet time show within the show, but the larger show kidding, there's something about the whole thing that that doesn't make sense. There's an implausibility to the basic premise that I haven't been able to get around. Mm. And I think a big part of it is simply it has to do with Frank Langella's character that I don't I don't really believe that he's the father of that of either of those two characters. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? right. And it's a reveal at the yes. end of the first episode. We've sort of spoiled a mild spoiler of the first episode because we see the whole workplace of puppet time proceeding in its dysfunctional way and Jim Carrey starting to sort of subtly fall apart on set as he wants to talk about his son's death and can't and his father is this cold corporate head who won't let him talk. But we don't know it's his father or that Catherine Keener, mm-hmm. who's sort of the main puppet designer and puppet operator, is his sister until the very end of the first episode and it's sort of treated as this surprise. Like here they are around a dinner table and they're all a family. And that has continued to feel like a complete contrivance to me for Mm -hmm. all four of the first episodes. You put your finger on exactly what my major reservation was about the show, but enough about me. Julia, um, a funny mixture of the Mr. Rogers show and uh, Pee Wee's Playhouse at the heart of this Jim Carrey vehicle. What do you think of it? I mean, I would uh, echo the senator's remarks. <laughs> <laughs> um, I agree with Dana about almost everything here and would only add that uh, an additional implausibility lies in the fundamental conflict between the mysteriously evil corporate dad who's just looking for Hallmark tie-ins and worried about the millions of dollars attached to the brand of Mr. Pickles, um, which is that the show fears 
grappling with death and loss. And the, the character is so narrowly modeled on Mr. Rogers. I mean, it's just so clear that it's a Mr. Rogers shtick, that it's a kind of kindly, genteel, anti-modern man who has a real way with children who, not anti-modern in the bad way, but just sort of like um, from a dated nostalgic past, um, who has this inventive, whimsical world. There's even kind of an equivalent of Never Never Land within the show, within the show that that's called Pickle Barrel Falls and, and a beautiful sequence that echoes the trolley in Mr. Rogers of how they get to this mystical Neverland. There's so many echoes of Mr. Rogers. And perhaps this difficulty wouldn't have been as striking if so many Americans hadn't just seen this wonderful documentary Mm -hmm. about Mr. Rogers that came out earlier this year. But one of the things that documentary made clear and that I think I would have remembered anyway is that Mr. Rogers really didn't shy from emotional truths and emotional difficulties and that part of what the point of that Wonderland was was like creating a safe place to talk about difficult things in the culture, in one's emotions, and to take the emotions of children seriously. So it's jarring to see the kind of magical, mystical creatures, the pickle choir, the soap scum monster, um, and and try to figure out what would have conjured this world to exist. It's It's so clearly a weird and specific kid's world, that it doesn't feel like an empty, generic, corporate kids' world that's like, there's going to be six pups, and each of them will be a different kind of EMT, and there'll be one girl who's pink. and You know, it's just like not, it's not corporate kids stuff. It has this sort of Michel Gondry mystical weirdness that seems like it would have to come out of a human brain. And so the kind of conflict of, we can't talk about death on the show, you have to only mm-hmm. talk about colors. Yeah. It's like, what has this show been about for so many years that the guys who rob your car find your ukulele, ukulele Larry in the <laughs> trunk of your car and are so shocked at the idea that they've stolen Mr. Pickles' mm-hmm. car that they put it all back together in the hot chop shop and return it to him. Mm-hmm. Like, you can't create that relationship with all of America if all you do is, like, talk about how right. horses are right. red and Right, and it's a PBS right. show. I think they even say it's a PBS show. So there's it seems to be this completely, as you say, uncorporate, quirky show with handmade pickle choirs singing little songs for children. Right. And yet, for some right. reason, it has this sharky Frank Langella managing right. it. Also, right. how did the sharky Frank Langella bring up two incredibly creative children who wanted to make that show? I also want to know about their childhood and their mother is not a character is there any more of my thunder you'd like to steal (laughs) (laughs) is is it my turn yet (laughs) yes sir um well okay a couple of elephants are in the room already the first is did you like jim carrey and i mean that's inseparable from what we think of as kind of continuity problems or plot problems or premise problems with the show but it's not it's not totally not separable i think he's wonderful in it i really like him in it and this nonsensical feature of the show, I mean, they've, they've tried to have it too many ways at once. They both want a satire on the um, corporate exploitation of the merchandising possibilities of literally every piece of content um, that hits a TV set or a, a, a movie screen. At the same time, they want him to be a saint figure in the directly in the Mr. Rogers mold for all of America. And having just seen the documentary, we, a documentary about Mr. Rogers, we know the specifics of how that person became that iconic figure and it has to do with being religiously called it has to do with having a very specific temperament uh being at the right place at the right time it had nothing to do with any kind of cynicism or whiff of cynicism whatsoever so they've set themselves up with a with a 
a, a plot problem or just kind of a, a backstory problem that they have yet to address and solve. But the but the real issue is, as you say, it, it makes no sense given the premise of what the show is supposed to be that he's avoiding death. The thing that preoccupied me even more is that, you know, what is Jim Carrey known for if not a kind of manic, anarchic energy? So they've cast seriously against type and against the kind of body of work that this uh, that this actor has done and the set of associations we have with them. That kind of weirdly worked for me in a little, in a strange way. Like he's very low affect. He's supremely depressed about the loss of his kid. And you sense that there's so much beneath the surface. And that's where the odd relationship with the father redeems itself a little bit. I think it's a terrible choice and it doesn't entirely work. But but to the extent that I think over the, I watched four episodes too, and found myself eventually gripped by the show. Over the remaining six, I hope we get at the deep backstory of how this person was called to become a kind of secular minister to children in uh, watching TV during their sort of softest, most malleable uh, developmental uh, stage. But as of now, it seems to me the degree of difficulty of that problem is extremely, extremely high. Dana, you nailed it. I don't believe that this is father and son. Uh, I don't believe it's father and daughter. Uh, it seems, I do also find that his, I love Frank Langella in the part. I love, I love everybody in the show. I especially love Frank Langella. Uh, uh, that sinister, uh, dark energy of his is riveting. The problem is his part is overwritten, I think, um, to a noticeable degree. He's meant, he's, he's meant to drop in the kind of Larry Sanders, uh, 30 rock, uh, writing style, and they've compressed it all into his mouth and his vocabulary. And I think that that overwhelms the show a little bit. That said, I'm hooked. I am going to watch it through to the end. I did find it more compelling than a lot of the ostensibly good shows that we sample for this podcast. Like, there felt like something fresher and more electric and weird about it. I think through some combination of, even though we made sport of you, Dana, the puppets, which are truly inventive and interesting, and the and the kind of clarity of that world of the show. The performance of Jim Carrey, which I agree, the kind of coiledness of it, the 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 implied repression of it, of like every bit of Jim Carrey we've ever seen into this tight, compact, um, kind of simmering figure adds tension. And then the episodes I saw were directed by Michel Gondry, and they're just beautiful and interesting. The transitions are strange. Even the way the suspense of that pilot unfolds about what the relationship is. At one point, it seemed you you, you, you wonder whether Catherine Keener is Jim Carrey's wife. Like the, the mm-hmm. kind of yeah. the way in which it allows you to untangle what the relationships are has its own narrative suspense. Um, and there's a beautiful scene in the second episode uh, that's completely implausible and dreamlike where Jim Carrey is in a house adjacent to the house that his wife, his estranged wife, his new boyfriend and his remaining son are and sort of watches this familial drama unfold in his former house that's uh, like balletic and beautiful and estranging and completely impractical and improbable and unrealistic, um, but just remarkable and unusual Mm -hmm. and felt... um, more fresh and surprising than uh, than other things I've seen, and I and it and it made me almost willing to suspend the disbelief around the central 
implausibility of the Franklin Jell character and the conflict inherent in that role and made me curious about where the show is going to take that and whether it can kind of take that error of premise and just get past it through the sheer inventiveness of the performance and the direction and the design. Okay, so it's uh, it's called uh, Kidding. It's on Showtime. I th- think we're telling you to watch it and then tell us what you think of it um, as a way of letting us know what we think of it. Something along those lines, but uh, we liked it enough to send you to it. Uh, check it out and tell us what you thought at facebook.com slash culturefest. Okay, moving on. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, before we go any further, uh, Julia, I'm assuming we've got some business. What uh, What's up? Yes, Steve. In Slate Plus today, we're going to talk about the essay a lot of people are talking about, about what we talk about when we talk about The English Patient, <laughs> the 1996 movie based on Michael Ondaatje's uh, Booker Prize winning novel of the same name. There was an essay. It posited that the movie was bad. It started a big fight on the internet. We're going to talk about it. The fight, the movie, the essay. Come by Slate Plus. We'll have a great conversation. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program, which is a great way to support the work we do. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, onward. Sex, money, Nazis, a cult, all brought to you by Canadians. What's not to love? We've talked about this. We've talked about what some people regard as cults before on the show. This one comes with a, a, a bunch of twists. You throw in some new age hoodoo and multi-level marketing and presto. You have Uncover, Escaping Nexium, a podcast from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, the CBC. Nexium, I should say, is spelled N-X-I-V-M. It, uh, it was an organization that began as a multi-level marketing company, which is kind of like Amway. You bring in new people to sell the product, and a cut of what they make goes to you, the person who recruited them. There's a heavy incentive, as you would imagine, to pyramiding the whole thing up with those at the top making an absolute killing while doing very little. Um, this one comes with a twist, though. This is sort of Amway meets Scientology. The goods being sold here were classes, courses, coursework in the Nexium philosophy, which were steps along the way to your best self. A lurid story unfolds involving starlets, heiresses, lawsuits, the branding of young female bodies, the actual physical using hot poker branding of young female bodies, I should say, voluntary slavery and harems. Let's listen to a clip. I'm the first one to arrive. And, you know, I I know that I'm going to an initiation and I'm going to meet what she's called my sisters for the first time. And she says, come upstairs. And I've been to her home before, so I feel comfortable. And I'm going up the stairs, and she says, go into the guest room and get get naked. Take off all your clothes and wait here. And I'm like, what? And she's like, Sarah, you have to get over your body issues. Like, it's just me and women you know. It's going to be fine. 
I'm like, oh my god. What the fuck is going on? Sarah Edmondson. We met when we were two. We went to the same daycare. Last summer, I ran into her on Hornby Island in British Columbia. I hadn't seen her in about 15 years, and we had one of those disjointed conversations you have as you run after small children. I told her, I work at the CBC. And she replied, I just left a cult. You know, we should stipulate up top before we dig into this conversation, like with Sarah describes Nexium as a cult. Various people who've been associated with it describe it as being a cult, accuse it of being a cult. Keith Raniere, the founder, says Nexium is absolutely not a cult. It's a completely legitimate business. It is a multi-level marketing business, but it's selling a real product that really exists. And, you know, like he, he defends the institution as not a cult, says that the various branding and sex ex- escapades had nothing to do with him or anything he was aware of. Um and, you know, I think we'll probably end up using the term cult throughout this discussion because it's what Sarah and it's a term that Sarah uses and that is used in the podcast. But we should just stipulate there is debate about exactly what kind of institution this is. Julia, let me start with you. In one sense, the, the bar here is set kind of low. It's pretty easy to clear given the subject matter. I mean, people tend, to, especially in podcasting, they gravitate towards uh, stories about cults and, um, you know, the backstory of the cult leader. This one involves f- famous, good-looking women, heiresses, on and on. On the other hand, the, the bar's quite high. People have been culted out a little bit. Where did you Where did you fall in between those two possible responses? I liked this show. I thought it was um, generally pretty responsibly and interestingly made the core audio at the center of it uh you can hear the genesis of in that clip you know the story of nexium and this cult and the you know actresses who were involved in it has been discussed and reported on in various venues a bunch over the last few years um and you know the there's a lawsuit underway and of course the leader disputes that it's a cult and you know the 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 you, it's possible to follow the contours of this story through reporting in the new york times and forbes and other outlets um what makes this show different than just a set of reporting on something little known is the fact that this woman who was a part of Nexium for 12 years and then left and describes what she's done as having left a cult uh, knows this reporter from the CBC and talks to him at great lengths, pretty close to, it seems, in time, the de- her departure from the institution. And... Uh, as a result, we hear a ton of um, intimate recollection, description, um, grappling with what it meant to be part of this institution for so long and what it's like to to, to leave it. I think the thing that I'm still thinking about with the show and wondering about and curious what you guys think about is – you know, the, the the CBC is a respectable journalistic outfit. They, of course, know that having a journalist who is acquaintances with the core subject and this very chatty and loquacious and charismatic and compelling whistleblower figure um, creates a potential for bias or potential to be too wrapped up in this woman's version of the story. She describes how she was pressed into servitude, branded, forced to become... Um, as a slave to a woman in a kind of women's sect within 
the institution um, and then slightly skimmed over in a few episodes is that she herself pressed a few women into slavery to her as part of this pyramid scheme of slavery. The show, I don't think, gets into the question of whether the women who were beholden to Sarah, the central narrator, uh, or the central figure here, were themselves branded. And in the final episodes of the show, it circles back around to interrogate Sarah's role in all of this, the damage that she may have perpetrated upon other people in the course of recruiting, uh, the degree to which she's a kind of charismatic saleswoman herself who's getting out of a collapsing institution at the right time and uh, finding a way to tell her story. And that question of how sympathetic she is and or how manipulative she's being um, is, I think, part and the, and the kind of access to her thinking and herself are, to me, what makes this show more interesting and more and, and distinct from some of the other cult-related documentary work we've heard lately, including the um, the yoga series from 30 for 30 um, and Wild Wild Country. I mean, we've now, this is like the third uh, cult-related media we've discussed in the last, I don't know, seven months or something like that. Um, I think she's a, a very compelling and interesting figure at the core. I think the show structurally tries to or goes through the moves of interrogating her motives and role. I'm not sure it does it entirely satisfyingly. Um, I also think, you know, the other compelling character in the show is the lawyer for Keith Ranieri, who's the head of this institution, who is an incredible salesman in and of himself of the um, yeah, of Keith Ranieri's view of events and how everything these women were doing were completely voluntary and any charges otherwise are completely ludicrous, like his particular brand of using a kind of uh, disarming impersonation of candor and, uh, you know, kind of light and expertly wielded uh, understanding of the legal system was its own kind of salesmanship. And so I just, I felt like there was a ton of compelling audio here and that it was fairly responsibly compiled, but I left feeling a little bit queasy about how much Sarah's role and motives had truly been interrogated. Dana, queasy or, or what? I guess from an ethical standpoint, this this show didn't bother me. I didn't feel like it was um, it was obscuring so much information about Sarah's responsibilities that you know she was being glossed over. I also found that lawyer, I think, much less credible than you, Julia. It seemed like he actually broke down under questioning. I mean, he might not have thought he was breaking down, but there were there were some big holes in his his defense. I thought early on in, in the conversation with him. But I wonder if you guys also sense that there were some narratological weaknesses in this podcast that sometimes kept it from being as clear and comprehensible as it could have been. I, I had a little slate back padding moment of thinking a slate editor would never let this <laughs> storytelling lack of clarity stand in a podcast. Like, for example, did you guys have any problem with the verb tense usage over the course of these seven hours of podcast? I mean, there was a lot of Speaking of the pa of past events in the present, which I realize mm -hmm. is kind of a technique to make you feel like you were there or something. But since there are also some unresolved aspects to this case that are still unfolding in the present, it was really hard to tell where we were mm -hmm. in time. And yeah. I kept wanting just time markers. Like there's a moment that yeah. they talk about Keith Raniere being put in prison. And I wanted to know 
how long is, is he supposed to be there for? How long has he been there for? How old is he? There were just a lot of time markers that were, mm-hmm. that were missing because of that slippage. And also, what was another narratological bit that was strange? Oh, yeah, there was, there's, there's all this, as with any cult, there's this kind of jargon that you learn along the way about how people within Nexium talked about moving up through the different stages and the trainings and things like that. And several different times, people, including Sarah, used this phrase. I think it was EMing. Then I EMed these people and I actually went back a couple episodes and tried to figure out what they were talking about, and I don't think it was ever defined. Mm. Anyway, I mean, those are small things, but it's enough to make you feel a little bit uh, at sea in the story that's being related. I will say about, it took me a little while, but I did get gripped by it, got completely sucked in. Um, And in puzzling out why this is what I came up with, you know, the mystery of, and this we should say is an alleged cult, but the mystery, you know, the, the kind of mystery that cult stories to my mind, are seeking to solve comes from, and pardon my language here, but it comes from the weaklings who are attracted to the cult. If they are so obviously thwarted or slightly pathetic or absolutely pathetic human beings, the mystery is very easy to solve. Because then the question of what kind of charisma and what kind of, you know, uh, high bullshit it takes to get these people to submit their will to another not just an organization, but to this singular human being, it's just too easily answered. I mean, it's just they're they're weaklings, right? And and the more the people Dana and I are both making like crazy faces at your use of the word weakling. It's so interesting. It doesn't square with how I think about it at all. But finish your thought. Oh my gosh. Okay. Um but um uh but if they're not obviously kind of moral or or characterological weaklings then the mystery is totally gripping. Why is it that, so for example, the Bronfman, you know, so going back a little bit further, this guy was able to get the Guinness Book of World Records back in the 70s or 80s to the cult, the alleged cult leader, was able to get the Guinness Book of World Records to um, identify him as one of the smartest, measurably smartest human beings alive. He got the Dalai Lama to come to some event that he threw. He snookers people over and over and over again, including um, these two sisters, the Bronfman sisters, who are uh, heiresses to the Seagram's fortune, who become, uh, according to this podcast, become um, the kind of purses for the organization, especially during litigation. Um, In fact, quite what seemed to me, what sound like quite interesting and strong-willed people are attracted to this um, to this organization, which made the mystery one that I wanted to hear solved, which was what is it about this guy that he was able to build this out? And it does appear as though he's a uniquely intelligent person who's manipulative and a kind of um, cross between the devil and Tom Sawyer. He's getting everyone else to paint his fence throughout life while constructing a harem of beautiful supplicants. And um, I'm about four, four and a half hours into it, but I'm eagerly, eagerly anticipating the rest of it. But have at me, I mean, now that you've heard what I said. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I just don't, I don't experience most cult stories as boring because I don't see why the people are interested. Like I basically always see why the people are interested, even when the, um, even when the pitch is maybe less like glamorous or private jetty than this particular pitch. Like this was very corporate, um, be your best self, no weaklings. If you have any pain or suffering, it's because of you. What the, the, the 
you know, any suffering or problem that you're having is like on you and on your emotional response to your situation and that you should, you know, be be the change you want. Um, and so it's kind of a Jordan Peterson, tough love, no wusses type, you know, ethos, which is different than some of the other uh, ethos of these compelling groups that we've talked about. But I don't know, like the 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 line from like yearning to be a better version of yourself and having a better life that draws people to self-help and um, and kind of religious and other you know, philosophies of being, um, I never, I never, I don't, but then, but then, I just I, don't, I don't, I like to me, the particular qualities of the cult, I, I, I just don't grok but, that view of the, I think it doesn't seem like a more interesting cult because he's a more savvy leader or something. Well, but listen, you're trying to answer a question, which is why would a self-respecting human being give these people all their money, their Free like it, it couldn't be more explicit in this instance. All of their free will to literally be called slaves and to act as slaves, and their their bodies sexually to to submit sexually to the cult as well. Like that. Well, wh- why else was one interested, Dana, in a cult story if not to understand what is it about the structure of a personality, the shape of a person's life, and uh, uh you, you know, and the nature of the charisma or the meaning structure of the organization that draws them to it. Like, isn't that's the story? What else, what else does one want to know when one learns about uh, an alleged cult? I agree that that is the that's the crux of what one wants to know. But I'm just I'm just fascinated that that you want to posit, given that complexity, that there's this fixed set of people called moral weaklings who no, can be I didn't say that. I said, no, I said that that's a bad cult story is one in which you just think, oh, that person, like the answer is so simple. That person is just a lost, pathetic, you know, I feel I feel for them, but a kind of a weakling. But, the, but what's riveting about the very good cult stories is that, that the people attracted to some of these aren't aren't like that, right? So what human need is going unmet in the modern world or in their life that, that, that why do people crave a, t- a totalitarian social structure within a free society is another way of asking the question. Right, which is something that we're asking outside of the world of cults, too. Well, would you say that the previous two cult stories we've talked about this year, Wild Wild Country and the, the Bikram podcast the, about the, the hot yoga cult, fall into the category of people being interesting enough to be worth pondering who join the cult? I thought Wild Wild Country was just built around that idea. And, and and um yeah, I mean, that lawyer, I mean, talk about the lawyer, the lawyer in that instance, and just trying to get beneath what's being said. Are these people, like, what kind of, are they the ultimate dupes? Are they the ultimate, you know, Svengali cynics? Are they, what are they? Are they enlightened or are they utterly lost and damned? I mean, to me, that was that was the gripping question throughout. I mean, I do think that part of why we're interested in these stories now does have to do with our social and political moment where the question of what you come to believe and how far you will go to justify those beliefs once you come to hold them is at the center of our political life, our social fabric. Like, how can it be that someone could look at this moment, this presidency, and conclude a set of things that seem so alien to what any normal person would conclude? And that question of how belief structures are built, even dangerous and surprising ones, is pertinent. And I think that, I mean, maybe that's just like a stupid pop arm, armchair, but it feels to me like that's what's at the core of 
our interest in these cult questions right now. And just the access to her and the time we spend with her. I, I mean, I agree with you that the the people who join up in both the Bikram podcast and in Wild Wild Country are also interesting and also good storytellers. But the the intimacy of the access we have to this one central mm-hmm. figure is part of what I think makes this one worthwhile. Yeah, it's pretty pretty unique. I mean, I'm struggling, Julia, I have to admit, with the idea that the quality of that person's narrative and the seeming capability for introspection and presence of firm character doesn't make it a more compelling story. I just have never heard a cult story where I was like, well, this is an obvious dipshit. And thus, I don't care. Like, I've never heard, I've never had that experience. So I, it just feels like these moral weaklings, these supposedly boring moral weakling cult victims are like straw men. Mm. Okay. Right. And also to defend my choice of the uh, word weakling, I mean, you know, these are hierarchical structures, or, or really when you look at it kind of concentric with the charismatic figure at the center, and then the motivation of every member is to get is to move from circle to circle to circle until you're part of the very innermost circle. Um, and so it stands to reason that the most prominent members of the cult have progressed to the inner circle for, um, you know, for a reason, which is that they're more interesting, they're more attractive, they're more of a challenge to get the, the to, to them to submit. And I, it just, I, I don't mean to use an offensive term. It just seems to me as you move, what we don't see in a lot of these documentaries are people on the very fringes who are clinging and not really advancing for reasons that maybe have to do with what I'm alluding to. Anyway, it's called Uncover, Escaping Nexium. Uh, he's a delight, right? Do we agree? Our Virgil in this, our host? Josh, good old Josh. Good old Josh. All right, moving on. Dad jokes are simultaneously beloved and maligned, so writes Ashley Fetters in the Atlantic Monthly in her piece, The Dad Joke Doctrine. She goes on to say, they're deeply ingrained in the intimacies of family life and yet universal and public enough to have a hashtag, a specific tone, and interpersonal dynamic converge to make a joke a dad joke. And the recent ubiquity of dad jokes might even reveal something about the state's of modern fatherhood and humor. Well, let me just say that the real dad joke takes place in the wild and is spontaneous. You just say something painfully stupid and obvious uh, at precisely the right moment in order to bring up the color of your uh, young children and embarrass them. You guys have dads in your lives, uh, partners uh, with whom you've had children. Do they make stupid jokes? Um, What do you make of the essay and the phenomenon? I mean, I, I feel like I, I like the essay. I don't think it fully covers the complexity of the phenomenon. I don't know that you can reduce. I mean, she doesn't try to do this, but but there seems to be in general a reduction of the dad joke to just the pun, the play on words, the kind or something like you just did this sort of like corny old joke. And like the author of the piece mentioned something that her grandfather used to do where he would pretend that her name was Mildred and just pretend he didn't know her name, which is, is classic. And I just remember that my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, used to have this dumb couch joke where he would just sit on us, the grandchildren, on when we were in a chair or a couch at his house and pretend that it was a lumpy cushion. Oh, yeah. The lumpy, <laughs> they're like, why is this bed so uncomfortable? <laughs> right. And those aren't verbal at all. They're like dad gags, I guess. They're dad physical jokes. But it does seem like and I know many new dads who have sort of said it was almost as if some gene kicked in and when they had a child they started making these goofy jokes so i for partly i want to make this an experiential dive into steve metcalf's world of daddom and see if his sense of humor changed after he had children well and also like is it actually gendered i mean i will say i was disappointed by this essay which struck me as like a nexus dump like wikipedia page about dad jokes like there was no 
argument or unified theory of the dad joke or idea about why we're thinking about dad jokes now. It's just like, dad jokes, they've been around. Some thoughts. And uh, I wanted more to grapple with. But let us try to let us try to conjure that more. Um, that thing you said about Mildred and the couch cushion joke, which I remember playing with my parents. Like, I remember it, honestly, both of them being like this, like, well, gosh, I'm just trying to lie on this cozy pillow, but this pillow is full of elbows. Like, why are there so many bones in this pillow? You know, whatever. The whole shtick of of ignoring, obtusely ignoring reality that the children can see and kind of putting yourself in the emperor position of the emperor has no clothes intentionally and like letting your kids be the ones to figure it out and to 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 point to reality and grab a hold of it like that those are sort of everywhere and it makes me wonder if the dad joke is actually about like learning humor what are you laughing at i'm laughing at one of my own dad jokes (laughs) proof that they're for the teller and not for the told to i'm sorry go ahead well well i just makes me wonder if this mode of humor is about teaching humor or something like that if there's a mode of humor a mode of inversion or a mode within family life that's like it's like the game the game that a friend a family friend gave this advice about how to play with kids um like if you're if you're like the aunt or like the unchilded person at a thanksgiving and there's like a bunch of you know three to seven year olds like what do you do pretend they're strong like Mm-hmm. Have them yeah. give you a high five and then like fall over and like collapse <laughs> in a heap as soon as you receive the high five or like have them pantomime like, you know, punching you in the gut and like rock it back across the room like feign idiocy and weakness so that you can give them the feeling of strength. And I feel like there's something in this kind of parental humor that's about um feigning obtuseness about things or dopiness in a way that like allows mm, the mm-hmm. the children to feel like they're smarter and like they have a leg up and like they understand the world better than you do and they know that there's a kid underneath that pillow and they know that the guy didn't die in the barn cause, barn because he couldn't find a corner to piss in and the you know, like that they can call you're giving the kids an opportunity to call bullshit on you mm-hmm. as the grown yeah. up and that there's like a a kind of teaching quality to that that is fundamentally generous at its core. Um, I don't know. That's right. Here, there's the a joke, random theory from the sky. Well, I mean, if what a joke does in part is is posit a situation that is not the case that, and create tension around that and then resolve the tension with the punchline, right? That's one interpretation of what a joke does. Then a dad joke like sitting on the kid and pretending you don't know that they're not a cushion accomplishes the first part of that only, right? You posit this reality that is not the reality and the kid can laughingly point at it and say, no, I see that that is not the case. Right. The kid gets to be the punchline. And I, I remember one of my son's first joke like, I literally remember his first joke. He was like, I don't know, between one and two, just learning to talk on the changing table, only had a few words. Um, and I remember, like, leaning down into his face um, and being like, I forget if I was like, what's your name or what's my name? But I was like, what's, you know, what's my name? What's my name? And he kind of looked at me and smiled and said, Grandpa. <laughs> and, like, he was doing a dad joke on me. <laughs> Mm. And it was such a, and he was so delighted, like at my, like he knew it exactly what he was doing. He knew he was, call, he was calling me Mildred, you know, right? Um, and and it made him so happy. And it's I genius. was, so it's a meta dad joke because he was calling you your own dad. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh my. 
<laughs> the original dad joke. Um, okay, we've well, missed the point completely. Let me let me set you straight. Um, it, it, it goes through phases the dad joke because it begins as a joke that a little kid can get, but that's not exactly a dad joke. I mean, so for the one I was laughing at before is that when Kate, my younger daughter, was little, littler, when when you know she's now twelve, more like when she was six to eight. I used to, sometimes when I was driving her somewhere, I used to just edge the car over towards the median rumble strip a little bit. And you know, it makes that loud, vibrating, low rumbly sound inside the car. And then I would pretend that she'd had Mexican food for lunch. Um, She she loved it. (laughs) You guys are so heartless. She she loved the thought that that was me thinking that she was farting, which is the basic structure of a dad joke because it's you know, self-evidently preposterous. Um, but I think it evolves um, from like a silly or goofy joke that you make that a little kid will really get and appreciate into it's like become something else when you have your kids hit, you know, early adolescence. It, it's, it's a way to embarrass them and bring their color up by being silly, by being an embarrassing parent. Like it's you are playing the role of being an embarrassing parent. And what makes a dad joke good is you're aware that you're doing it while you're doing it. So the question is, well, why do you do that to your adolescent kid? And I think it's a couple different reasons. One is when they hit puberty, they become peer obsessed. And so they're very often around other friends in front of whom you can slightly embarrass them. Um, and they also begin to talk their own language, right? They begin to they begin to talk in teen or preteen argo, which is meant to exclude the grown-ups, specifically parents. And it's you gracefully saying, I don't, I don't speak your language and I'm not with it. And furthermore, I'm comfortable with that. And I'm gonna occupy with grace the role of the person who's completely outside of your circle. Um, and then it's also a way, and this is sort of high, highly gendered and somewhat delicate, but I do think it's true. It's a way of saying that I'm, you know, when you're a younger man, you use your sense of hum- humor in one way to, is to flirt and to, and to attract, you know, people to you, you know, romantically or whatever. And it, by making, and then you're making the opposite of dad jokes. You're being knowing, you're being sly, you're being maybe even a little, you know, body or whatever. But but that's the opposite of a dad joke. You're sort of announcing your new status, at least vis-a-vis your kids and your kids' friends, as a kind of eunuch, as a kind of happy eunuch, right? Like as a as a figure of such absurdity that that of course you're not in any way a threat. Thr- you're making yourself ostentatiously unthreatening. And then finally, I think what you're doing is it's a very sly assertion of their independence for them on their behalf. By doing all of this, you're saying. I am your dad, and you're now this very different thing. Like, we occupy totally different sensibilities, and that's really cool. That is so interesting. That notion that it's like an intentional, like, aspirational dopiness, that it's like I'm, I'm, I am neutered and safe is really interesting. I also really like the idea that somehow you managed to use the word grace twice in describing the dad joke, that it was a particularly graceful <laughs> kind of assertion of, of adult uh, the adult prerogative to be an embarrassing galoot in the face of teen <laughs> cunning. So a question then, why does that fall more to dads than moms? And I'm not here like waving a suffragette banner and saying, why can't we all make dad jokes? It may be a gendered phenomenon to some extent, but why do we talk about it as if it is? I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I have a question. I, I, I have an answer to that and I'll let Julia answer it. But just quickly, also, is it from a dad to a daughter, right? Do dad make, dads make dad jokes to embarrass their teenage sons? 
I think so. I yeah. think the okay. dad joke yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. I think the dad joke is multidirectional in its children, in the way it targets children. But I also think I'm like I don't. Th- I'm trying to think whether I make dad jokes. I don't know that I. I feel like I don't. I definitely don't. I mean, I may have running jokes, but they are generally jokes in which I'm genuinely trying to be funny and be laughed at. I, I think I'm still trying to impress my daughter with my sense of humor at this point. I'm not some sort of mild eunuch who's bowed out of being funny. And and her dad kind of is. I mean, he, they have a really, really ridiculous running joke about the length of his legs where she insists that his legs are really short and stubby and he insists they're so long they could wrap around the world and they draw pictures of the legs wrapping around <laughs> planets. And it's a total dad joke universe that they explore together that is just not my area. Huh. Hmm. I, yeah, I, I, I think maybe my kids aren't old enough yet to know the full, the full scope of it. Like my, you know, we FaceTime with my husband a lot cause he, he, he's in LA during the week and, um, like the dad joke of the phone calls is he puts a like water bottle on his head and then like pretends he doesn't know it's there <laughs> and then they make him look at it and he looks up and it falls off and we just do that like 20 times. You can tell I'm mentally eight because that sounds like a, just a good evening. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's why you think you don't make dad jokes, Dana, because you just, that is your humor. That and the puppets on the puppet time show. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like, is that a dad joke? I don't know. It's 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 uh, using FaceTime to resurrect physical comedy as a family phenomenon, and, and it's a way to kind of, it, you know, it was better when the kids were even younger and sort of less likely to verbally describe their days than they are now. Um, but you know, it's kind of like a little, a little TV show that we do all together where he pretends to be a clown on the phone, you know, sitting at his desk between meetings and the kids, uh, are just delighted by his hijinks. It's interesting. I mean, I've never been the son of a dad, so I, maybe your theory about the genderness of dad jokes is, is, is plausible. I, there's something there. I don't know. Maybe I, this is one I'd love to get listener feedback on. You can email us and, or, or find us on Facebook or Twitter, but I mean, I, 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 I don't like, I don't like gendering anything really, but you know, me included, but it's, it's, it just seems like a thing a dad says to his adolescent daughter to embarrass her, but maybe I'm wrong. Anyway, check out the essay, uh, and tell us what you thought at our various, uh, uh, venues. All right. Well, now is the moment in the podcast where we endorse day. Na 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 na. Quite an extended solo. This week, I I'm going to endorse a a song, just a single song. It was released a couple weeks ago. I meant to endorse it then, and then it sort of flew by, and there were lots of things piled on top of it. But Dolly Parton has released a new duet, and a Dolly Parton duet or any kind of Dolly Parton release is always an exciting thing. Um, And this is a remake of an earlier song of hers from an album she made in 1971. The song is called Here I Am. And uh, and it's a duet with Sia, which is a strange combination, Dolly and Sia, both of them being, you know, big voices in very different registers from very different genres. But they sound great together. And they both have a kind of soaring, anthemic, inspiring quality that actually makes their voices blend and their styles blend really well. I think the song was re-recorded for the soundtrack of a movie that hasn't come out yet. It's a movie called Dumplin' with an apostrophe at the end with Jennifer Aniston, which I, in which I assume she plays some sort of country girl, given the title. And uh, and this song will appear on the soundtrack. But if you're a fan of Dolly, and in particular, if you're a fan of the album Trio from 1987 that she recorded with Linda Ronstadt and uh, Emmylou Harris, 
this has a little bit of, of, of that feeling of two, you know, modern ladies taking on a, an older song and, and doing something new and fun and a little bit gospel inspired with it. My world is such an empty place. I need someone to fill the space. Here I Am, recorded by Dolly Parton and Sia. You can find it on the web, and uh, maybe this is an augury that they will make a record together, which would be a great thing. Um, I would just like to say that I have been listening to a, a, a edited and slightly modified version of our summer strut playlist kind of nonstop for the last few months since we recorded that episode every year it's such a great refresh of my listening and uh, I'm still discovering great new gems within it and one song which I can't remember whether we mentioned I don't think we mentioned it on the show uh, is a song called bedroom by a band called litany which is just an insane uh, delightful, low-key, sex-me-up earworm, and uh, I, I would recommend it to you. Uh, uh, a woman and a couple treated her partner to a Metcalf weekend in the Hudson Valley um, and uh, took him to all of the places in and around Hudson, New York, that I've recommended over the years, uh, and then sent me a gloriously long and lovingly detailed email describing it. It made my week. It was absolutely the highlight. Um, so I can't not endorse my own endorsements as people enact them out in the real world. Um, <laughs> you should you should absolutely feel free to email me. I've got a list of places that I still love and still go to if you are doing a Hudson Valley weekend. Um, absolutely. So self-endorsed. Um, uh, my daughter is listening to the song by Hozier, H-O-Z-I-E-R, who probably has sold 60 million albums, but I've never heard of him. But it's a live song he plays on a, I think he's playing a nylon string to acoustic guitar uh, and singing. It's called Cherry Wine. It's, I think it's really beautiful. I mean, it's it's really fun to listen to that song while driving my sister to and from school. It looks ugly, but it's clean. Oh, mama, don't fuss over me. The way she tells me I'm and finally, I heard the other night on um, on uh, Terry Gross on Fresh Air, she was interviewing Robbie Falks and Linda Gale Lewis. Did anyone hear that? Mm-mm. It's it's really worth listening to. He's kind of an alt country um, singer songwriter type, and she's um, famous for a lot of different things. She's a wonderful singer and performer in her own right, but she's um, Jerry Lee Lewis's sister. Uh, and a creature of another era completely. And the two of them came together and made a country record called Wild, 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 three exclamation points, uh, um, separating the wilds. And it's uh, uh, the segment with Terry Gross was just phenomenal. You just get so much music history um, between the two of them. 
uh, and uh, and then the excerpts from the album were great. So I've been listening to it. It's really wonderful. So there you go. There are your endorsements. Dana, thank you. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today. It's on our show page at slate.com slash slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash culturefest. We do have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. We have a producer too. His name is Benjamin Frisch, a production assistant, Alex Barish for Dana Stevens and uh, Julia Turner. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. 